0: Like consumer goods, entertainment, finance, and just about every other area of commerce and culture, food is global. When tuna is overfished in the Pacific Ocean, it affects prices globally. When green beans are discarded in Central America because of their appearance, it affects which ones go to North America and which ones go elsewhere. When dairy cows are given antibiotics and when herbicides leach into the water supply, the health effects are global in scale. In the documentary series Food Exposed, Fusion reporter Nellifer Hedayat travels the globe eight times over to find the causes and effects of some of the biggest global problems in food policy. Well, Nelifer Hadaya, I really appreciate you talking to me. I've seen several episodes of the series and you are all over the place. Where all did you go for the show?
1: Where did I go for the show? That's a really good question. Um we we did we did try to do um as varied and as diverse um a kind of um journey as possible. And we went from you know the north pole through to the andes in peru we went down to argentina um through to a lot of west africa the high seas of the gulf of guinea all the way to china and east asia so to say that we we followed our noses to wherever the story was would be quite accurate
0: so you're in los angeles a lot uh in the show and You're in Los Angeles a lot, and then you're in some other places. Did you cross-shoot the whole series, or did you shoot each episode separately?
1: We shot in real time, but that was a very, very deliberate um, uh, intention of mine. It's very hard for me to do these kind of very immersive, very journey-driven Uh, documentaries, if we are sort of cutting and starting the same way a movie does or the same way reality TV does, we try to keep the integrity of the narrative, of the journey, of the investigation paramount. So um, when when I say to you, you know, we, we traveled around the globe seven times, you get a sense of exactly what we mean. And the 16 countries we did visit that's not accounting for, say, China, where we where we went to four times and Hong Kong, where we went to twice and the States where we landed numerous times. So it would be very difficult um, as it, as a documentary maker in this style to kind of just pick and choose because we don't know what we've seen. And then you get into this kind of murky world of like. What are your known knowns and your known unknowns and your and all of this? So it just makes sense to to kind of it's expensive, yes, but it makes sense to do it. Well, this and way. it's
0: amazing to have the resources to be able to do it that way because as I was watching it, I just assumed you cross shot because it would be so expensive to do all these on an individual um, basis, what did that give you an opportunity to do in terms of progressing from episode to episode and learning these things discreetly rather than having to sort of throw all of these issues out at one time and deal with?
1: So the main, main point to make here is that we, that is to say, I don't script anything. So whenever we go into a situation and I'm doing an interview, I've pre-prepared I've got my information. I know who this person is. I know what I need them to say, but never do I sit there with, you know, my questions. It's not a 60 minute type of studio, well lit, you know, makeup, hair type situation. So having said that, what it affords me to do to shoot it in this way is to really maintain the authenticity of what we're filming. And that word authenticity gets banded about. It's sort of, flavor of the month at the moment within the documentary world. But but what, it, what it, its essence is that we try to make sure that the story we tell, the people we meet is true to them and what they say. So I don't have to go in a situation, read some lines, and the audience doesn't have to sit there and be like, does she believe that? Uh, has she rehearsed it? Is this authentic is this true um so when you're watching food exposed i I hope that you get a sense of the true immediacy of the whole thing you know we shoot it in order per episode you know and i can only really ever be in one place at one time so um it does take the full 12 months and that's I have to say it's a tall order. It, it, it does take its toll on my body and my health, but there is no other way to do it with the resources we have, maintaining the the integrity of that narrative. And when I'm working for Fusion, um, people like Keith Sumer, um, uh, people like Isaac Lee. That word authenticity is just so important to them. Um, and then we've got the Oscar winning, Emmy winning, everything winning execs of mine, Jonathan and Simon Chin, along with my showrunner, Suzanne Lavery, um, who, again, they, they put the onus on the narrative and the people so much so that everything else has to work around that, really, including the time, and the budget.
0: You had done a lot of global reporting before this series. Uh, did you come at this more as a a, a a food activist or someone interested in food policy or more uh, from the perspective of somebody watching how people are, are reacting to similar issues in a lot of different contexts?
1: Definitely the latter. Absolutely. I got the sense when I was doing the Traffickers Series 1, I was looking at things that were absolutely illegal you know these are traffickers these are bad people um often abusing extorting committing coercion and violence against ordinary folk to get what they need to the other side and i found myself going home almost all the time and i would sit there with my laptop and watching all of these documentaries and i'd be doing my own sort of research about the entire industrial food complex this completely elaborate complex interconnected web and i the similarities that i saw over time between how the industrial food complex operates and how trafficking networks operate were so startling that it naturally led me to kind of follow that. Why did I initially want to look at food? Because I started questioning where my food was coming from. So I was watching Cowspiracy, I was watching What the Health, I was watching Before the Floods and I was like, well, I don't know if I can really plead ignorance to what's going on here anymore. Um, I have the entire wealth of human knowledge in my pocket on my phone Can I really sit there and be like, oh, I didn't know. I had no idea. So with all of that having been said, for me, it was a case of, well, if I'm really interested and it's like half past midnight and I can't stop looking into this, maybe my audience will get it too.
0: Do you draw lines between journalism, activism, uh, awareness raising, or do you think of those as all sort of squishy species of the same activity?
1: see i have two answers for that there's the answer that i wish were true and then the answer that i think is true so the answer that i wish were true was no journalism absolutely has its place in our society it is the fourth estate we know that the job of journalism um, we know the job of filmmakers the job of news journalists um, and certainly the job of people who were there to present to us what is true and factual to be distinct and not marred in any way with anything else, whether it's activism or um you know whether you're getting paid to do certain things, those are very distinct lines, and they should never be crossed. That's the answer I want to give you. The answer I have to give you is different. I think a lot changed in the last sort of two to three years there's been this very palpable very strong awakening within people, politics, society, have all kind of merged into this strange space and no one really knows whether they can trust what they're seeing, reading, Um, putting out there. Um, I don't need to say the word fake news to kind of trigger a whole thought bubble in your head about what I might mean by that. So absolutely, I wish we lived in an age where journalism was was a bastion of fact-finding and truth-telling. I don't think we do. I think in this day and age, our audiences, because they demand this authenticity, accept that we come to a situation with a certain set of biases. And I'm not, you know, in the days that I grew up, gorging on documentary films there would be oftentimes a white middle-aged male person sat in front of a front line
0: david, at attenborough.
1: All- <laughs> oh, david attenborough you know um in my it, it, for me you know one of my heroes is john simpson of the bbc you know he'd be sat there with his khaki pants telling me what's what and what for um, and i would take that to be gospel I think now in the age we live in and the audiences that you and I have, they're far too smart for that. They know that there are variations of that narrative and they know that it's all a narrative. So I don't labor any under false pretense that what I'm bringing to you is the only truth. It's my truth. And it's to what I have seen as accurate as I can be.
0: I watch some of these episodes with the same complicated uh, feelings as like the U.S. news right now is you watch this episode about fish and you realize that. Uh, you know, we're overfishing and we're overfishing particular species and in particular parts of the world. And you're digging into that. But I I watch for like, yes, this is true. But what am I supposed to do with it? And now I feel guilty about eating fish. And am I supposed to do something or am I supposed to just understand this? And I, I get the same reaction I do to a lot of political news. Like, I feel a responsibility to know these things. But like, it causes me anxiety and I'm not exactly sure what to do with it when I'm finished. What? How do you think about that?
1: That consternation that you feel when you're, when you're watching that kind of slight culpability is part and parcel of what I try to do in my films. My films are designed and I'm so, uh, it pains me to hear it, but I'm glad you do because it means I've got it right that I've, I've tried to engage. And um, there is this, I mean, it's kind of journaling that, The kind of journalism that I tend to do is the kind of stuff that's like, hey, come and grab my hand. I'm gonna take you somewhere. I'm gonna take you to a place that you would have never gone to and learn some stuff that you probably don't know or don't want to know. And those inconvenient truths can be difficult, pardon the pun, to stomach. But um, I think the main thing that I, after 12 months, 16 countries, countless times around the globe, what I've come to realize, making food exposed, is to be hopeful, is that there is resolution here. And I'm glad you're outraged. I'm glad um, you're slightly anxious and there's consternation there and conflict because now it's on your mind. And if it's on your mind and everyone else who watches these kind of this this new genre of documentary making, then hopefully there's enough of us um, to action for change. Now, the one thing I always do say to to people who ask me these kind of questions is you make a choice three times a day. You might vote once every four years. So with what you eat, you have this almost kind of electric connection to the market because you need to do it no matter what. You might not need to buy that table, that car, that house, um, but you need to eat. So we vote on how that is done in our name, at least three times a day. So I think with that in mind, that rather than make me feel like, oh God, this is such an uphill battle, how can I win it? I can make choices and I'm a person, I'm a human being, I get it wrong all the damn time, but I can make choices um, that can alleviate that sense of guilt and responsibility. And I think in in a roundabout way, That's kind of what I want my viewers to do, to be curious, to ask the questions um, and to Google it, frankly.
0: This is kind of a fantastic thing to get to spend a year doing uh, at your age and at this point in your career. How how old are you?
1: I'm 30.
0: (laughs) So do you feel like you're... Early in in your career for doing this kind of thing, do you feel like you'll move into something else later? How do you feel about where this fits into what you're doing?
1: Here's um here's an exclusive for you. Um and I and I and I tend not to talk about this because I I try very hard not to talk about myself but my work. Um, but I had imposter syndrome for 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 such a long time making the traffickers and food exposed. I felt like. I didn't deserve it. Um, You know, I'm not in my mid 40s. I haven't, in a sense, grafted, as we would say, I um, sort of was picked very specifically um, by the people who were commissioning these sorts of things. And I, I felt I felt like I didn't quite deserve this for such a long time. Um, I didn't study journalism at school. I did get a first class in English literature, but that's just because I like reading books. So I had this weird complex for quite a long time. And um it was only maybe six months into the second series, So Food Exposed, when Keith Sumer, one of my execs and and, and a great hero of mine, said to me, Um, he used to be the producer for Peter Jennings. So he said to me, he said to me, um, do you know what it's taken to find someone like you? To find someone who is at the cusp. I was born in Kabul, raised in a war zone in the third world. I now live in one of the richest, most overabundant cities on earth in London. history of humanity. London. London town. So he said to me that, you know, this idea that you don't deserve it is is ludicrous because you see things in both spheres you can see that world that that place that we've all looked at through our televisions and you have a sense of belonging there and you see you've grown up in london so i think what keith was trying to get through to me was that you are quite uniquely placed to do these kind of stories to tell these kind of um uh, narratives in a way that isn't judgmental in a way that isn't myopic and in a way that gives each person a fair shot at it um at telling their story, at telling their truth. So it was only very recently where I started to feel like I own it. Not to mention, you know, after having done it for nearly two and a half years, I had proven that I could work at that incredibly high level that these documentaries demand consistently. Um, and I proved to myself that there is no difference between me and John Simpson, that, that those illusions are in my head. You know, as a woman of colour, as a woman who was a refugee, who was born in the third world. You come with a certain, um, well, you come with some baggage, and it's up to me to kind of, to, to be very thankful, but I was the right person at the right time. I wasn't lucky. I was the right person at the right time.
0: Coming <laughs> from BBC to Fusion, do you see differences in their approach to news or who their market is, or how, how do you contrast the? the the news values of the two companies?
1: I worked for the BBC News, um, the BBC Children's, and the BBC Documentary Factual Division for at least um, five years. And then I moved on to a newsroom at Channel 4 News, and they are very, very high-caliber, prestigious news news outfit here in the UK. And um, I have to say, whereas at the BBC I was sort of trained, in my training, I was told that being unbiased is the number one most important thing in what you're doing. At Fusion, we don't labor under such false pretenses because, you know, it was Jorge Ramos of Univision and of um, Fusion fame, just an absolute legend uh, within the industry, who who kind of told me, you know, the idea that you're going to stand there and tell people what to think is laughable nowadays. What we can do is present a set of facts understand our biases and still continue to try and present those facts. Um, And that's what I think the difference between the BBC and Fusion are. Fusion, certainly the people within the the departments, the Naked Truth, um, within factual and documentary making that I've worked at, haven't forced me to strip myself of who I am in order to make these films. They've said, note it, be mindful of it, and then continue. And we can always smell a lie.
0: Well, the, I think the sin of objectivity is false equivalence that it puts you in a position of saying that this is what these people say and this is what the other people say. But I mean, potentially the the, the sin of the other approach is that you're only talking to people who already tend to agree with you and it's activism masquerading as intellectual curiosity and that the only people who really are interested in what you're curious about, or the people who are already inclined to watch you anyway. So I, I'm i not sure which model makes more sense now.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I have similar kind of, and I don't think it's a static, argument i think this is an argument we continue to have it's just getting louder i think what you're talking about scott is this idea of an echo chamber where i'm sat in a room surrounded by people who agree with me and i say stuff and they agree with me and then i just say more of it and there is that danger absolutely but i think and 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 this is a very very wise early early decision that fusion made was to use lightbox media as a production company to do this um and i think that British sensibility of journalism, that that very sort of British filmmaking agenda, um, is well renowned. I think possibly because um, of its earnestness um, and its attempt to try and, and be very aware of itself. That you know ha- we have to understand that this, these films go out and a variety of people from a variety of different backgrounds will watch it. I hope when you've seen a couple of the episodes, and I hope by the time you get to Dairy you'll understand sometimes it's very hard for me to sit and listen to some of the things that I'm being told, much like the traffickers I'm sat in front of someone who's talking about, um, you know, raping women, uh, committing violence and coercion against them in order to get them under you know, their control. Um, hearing about the stuff that's going on in, in dairy farms and in the pork industry, what's happening in China at the moment, what's happening all over the, the heartland of America. Is difficult, but I hope, and this is where sort of a good director is worth their weight in gold, that the narrative that we tell mitigates against that as much as possible. It would be ludicrous if I sat in front of you and said, no, it absolutely doesn't happen. Of course it does, but we try to check it as often as we can.
0: Finishing the series, have you thought back much or distilled down what you've done into this is how to shop responsibly, or this is how to eat responsibly, or this is what NGOs should be doing, or this is what countries should be doing? Have you really thought much about what those bullet points are?
1: Yeah, I mean, we do have an impact team um, at Fusion whose whose specific focus it is to kind of try and draw real-life conclusions and affect change in the world we live in, not just through the telly box. So, Um, Yes, we do. We do try that. It's very hard for me because of what kind of a behemoth the industrial food complex is. I'm just one person within it. Um, I can't sit here. and And I think it would be such hubris of me to sit here and tell people what to eat. You know, you should go on this diet because it's going to save the world and um, try not to do that because it's going to save the world. Um, so I don't want to be that person with that voice. Having said that, we have, during the series, identified a couple of things. Um, and I'm working with the World Food Programme, for example, the UN, on a project to try and eradicate food waste. And that's that's something that they take very seriously. And it's a campaign, we've developed and worked on together. Um, with the hashtag recipe for disaster so there we can see a direct connection between what a person the documentary and uh, a non-governmental organization can do to try and fix this problem no one sits in a room uh, you know no one sits anywhere in the world and goes oh yeah hands up food waste is a great idea but we all do it so it's about how we try to change habits um nudge people in a slightly different direction I, however, would never sit here and tell people what to eat, how to eat it, and what quantities to eat it. What I would say is here's a bunch of th- things that I went, I got primary evidence. I went to those places. I went to Uganda. I went to Liberia. I went to the heartland of China to find you these people and to, for them to be able to express themselves and tell you these stories. What you do with that is entirely in your hands. And when you're talking about kind of, that anxiety you might feel or that that kind of strange kind of feeling of guilt, I don't think that comes from the knowledge you've now acquired. And I don't think it comes from the fact that you're a bad person. Absolutely not. I think it comes from the fact that now that burden of responsibility in part is on your shoulders. And that's annoying. It's hard to know what to do with it. Well, one, I mean,
0: thing, one thing you hope will advice, happen. And this is how I go ahead. I think we've got a little my bit of best time.
1: advice okay. no there's a bit of delay yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah my best advice the one thing i do hope happens when people watch all eight episodes is that they google it you know find the subject you really care about whether it's water preservation the amount of food waste generated whether it's the antibiotics in our pork and and the meat industry whatever it might be that you care about find your tribe online find a group that you can kind of fit into and then take it from there. It's impossible for you and me sat here on our sofas to kind of change the world. All we can do is what we can do. Um, And I don't ask much more than that, I think. I often get asked, you know, you've seen so much of the worst that there possibly is and and gluttony and um, violence and, and people doing really bad things. You know, you must hate Uh, humanity. You must hate people. And I often say it's quite the opposite. My entire journey with Fusion in in making traffickers um, and food exposed, um, I've become incredibly hopeful um, that we can all do something. I had that that
0: reaction to the food waste episode. There's a scene in the uh, or a section in the food waste episode where you and a group are going around in New York at night and looking at what bakeries and restaurants are throwing out uh that's that's actually good food and it made me wonder or it made me hope like i hope some of these bakeries are watching this or i hope someone who's looking for a business opportunity who's watching this will figure out that they could make a little money by taking these day old cupcakes and doing something else with them. And I mean, have you seen any evidence across the series of like people are getting ideas or, or people are either getting motivated by shame or by profit into making some changes in, in, in the way you're, the the way you're seeing some of these things happen.
1: I think it's human ingenuity. I think Some of the stuff, I mean, you have to understand, sometimes we film up to 120, 140 hours um, of content to make one. So the episode that you see goes out is but a tiny modicum of what we've shot. There are scenes that we had to that ended up on the cutting room floor where we meet ingenious um, companies. That are taking the initiative and trying to do something different, um, and whether it's with wonky vegetables or produce that, that 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 never ever leaves the farm being collected at source and then kind of boxed up in this um, often very bougie way to to, to sell to high end markets, whether it's chefs. Um, who are taking it upon themselves to to highlight this, and entire kitchens um, who are trying to find different ways around the food waste problem, all the way through to um, businesses and organizations and companies using this food to give to pantries or using technology in Silicon Valley to make this so-called clean meat. Every single episode, every single show that goes out within the Food Exposed series I was marvelling at the ingenuity of humanity. We're bloody cool at it when we want to be. So I think if, if in 50 years' time you and I get around a table and we, we have a conversation about the industrial food complex and where it is now compared to where we were in 2018, we would be shocked at the things that were acceptable then um, and how different the future looks. So I'm um, I'm very very motivated by just some of the stuff that I've seen, Just Ink with their kind of clean meats, what they're doing, um, water organisations. I, I mean, I could. Talk for hours about
0: him. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me. I think this is a, an, it's an exciting series that you're able to use the resources to go and and see the things that you want to talk about, and, instead of uh, uh, just having to explain things to people, you can actually get out and show. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's provocative in the sense of what provocative should mean, and, and that it makes you think. A lot about these things, and so that—that's what I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing in the uh, in the rest of these episodes.
1: Thank you very much, Scott. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank, thank you.